Welcome to In the Isles, the movie and TV podcast that is not available in colour or black and white. I'm James Rothwell. I'm Daniel Acton. This week, we'll talk about what we've been watching. We'll talk about some real news, including, of course, the HBO Max news. And for our main review, we're talking David Fincher's Mank on Netflix. James, Instagram. We're gathering a following. An actress followed you this week. Yeah, a verified actress with 40,000 followers. Who is it? I'm sure, I'm sure she's listening. I'm absolutely certain. Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. Um, starting in cinematic treats such as Prom Night, which if you've never seen that, the remake of Prom Night, it's a great film. I think it holds about a 4.4 uh, rating on IMDb. I shouldn't say this. She might be listening. She's great in it, though. In the Isles podcast is the Instagram. Follow us to see pictures of the films that we review and 60-second previews of episodes that you will already be listening to if you've got this far. James, any any social faux pas or people approaching you in a very aggressive manner in the last week? No, I've kept myself quiet this week as we've come out of lockdown into another lockdown in all but name. <laughs> Not a lot going on. How about you? Um, tried to keep myself sane where possible, given the current situation, as you say. And I've done so by spending needless amounts of money. So I have gone and purchased myself a PS5. Got very lucky. Didn't get it off one of the scalpers. I've not had to pay through the nose for it. Just the price as it should be. However, a long time ago, the company that I work for at the moment, I've been with them 10 years and they gifted me a £1,000. How generous of them. And rather than spending it on something that I should have done, like an engagement ring for my partner, a holiday abroad, something nice collectively for everyone. I chose to buy an OLED TV, which it was an obscene amount of money. I did research it for months on end, and I was very happy with my purchase. I thought I future-proofed myself for these next-gen consoles. Well, let me tell you, James, karma has bitten me in the ass because just got my PS5 and have come to learn that my TV in particular has known screen tearing issues with the next-gen consoles, which my partner was over the moon about, which I think is a bit statistic, to be honest. There's no need for that. But I'm a bit livid. I'm livid. All that money. Screen tearing, this is where the screen, the image appears to be splitting up. Yeah. Like there's horizontal blocks that are not aligned with each other. Exactly. So quite fundamental to your experience, I would say. And um, to just, you know, finally draw the knife in further, LG have produced a statement saying that they know it's an issue, but they've no time frame as to when or whether they even will fix this issue. Thanks, LG. That's, that is not good. That is not good. It's not really. Just take the image from one place to the other. That is basic. It's a TV. It's supposed to show images of things. Basic bitch technology, that's what it is. They can't even master that. But never mind. Doesn't impact, however, my film and TV situation. So shall we move on into what we've been watching in the last week? Yes. So tell us, James, what's on your watch list this week? Keeping the momentum going with Apple TV, I've got Fireball, Visitors from Darker Worlds, a documentary about meteors and shooting stars directed by Werner Herzog and Professor Clive Oppenheimer. And Professor Clive Oppenheimer is the main face of it, and it's narrated by Werner Herzog, the director. It's about people who, throughout the ages, have reacted to meteors by building myths and religions around them, using them as symbols of the afterlife, or, in modern times, being studied scientifically. Two examples that they look at is the Black Stone, which is an ancient meteor that is in the Grand Mosque in Mecca that's revered by Muslims as an Islamic relic or in Antarctica on this vast plain of ice where every rock that you find is a meteorite because there are no other rocks there. It doesn't go much into the science and the composition of these meteorites. The focus literally is on the people who study the meteors or revere them. I say literally because each time these people are introduced, there is a long close-up of them in silence that goes on for just a bit too long. And you can see them getting awkward about how long it's going on. You can see them becoming awkward 
and waiting for Werner Herzog to say, okay, that's enough. And it does that shot every time a new person is introduced about eight times throughout the film. So that is funny. Werner Herzog, I'm not going to try and do his accent. I'm not. I'm not. It's an Arnold Schwarzenegger type accent. He provides the commentary for this and his commentary swings between playful and reverent and there is choral music throughout that elevates the material and makes you feel like you're watching some kind of spiritual experience. It did stick with me. I did like to see these different cultures look at this scientific phenomena in different ways. I would recommend it. It's a one-off documentary and Apple, they've done it again. They've done it again. Still at 100% success rate in what I've watched on there. That's really good. That's a compelling argument to sign yourself up for a Apple TV subscription. You can watch all those five shows at your will. So that's, yeah, that's really good. Yeah. What was your, obviously you touched on his narration. I, I love Werner Herzog's voice. It's just so hypnotic. Well, in fact, I started watching this with, with my partner and she just went, I'm not into this. So I had to turn it off, but I'm going to revisit it after your recommendation because I do love his voice. It's just so soothing. Do you think? I do think so, yeah. And he really lets his personality come through. He shows archive footage of this scientist finding a very large meteor in Antarctica. And as he's narrating this footage, he says, and then something happens that you'd never have in a stuffy film school a man just appears in the corner and shows his ass to the camera. <laughs> this is true science and true passion on screen. It's he's it's got so much personality. What if you if you had to pick a favorite Werner Herzog film, what would it be? I don't think I've seen any Werner Herzog film. That's the thing. Oh really? Go go and watch Grizzly Man. It's a really really interesting story, and you've got his voice to boot. So several reasons. See, go and watch it. I've only seen him in Jack Reacher and this. Oh, I forgot he was in that. Yeah, he's a bit of an actor when he wants to be, isn't he? Good old versatile Werner. Anything else on the watch list? Back on home turf, on BBC iPlayer, I watched Small Axe, Colon, Red, White and Blue, which is part of the anthology of five films that Steve McQueen is doing. This is the only one of these five that I've seen. And if this is the quality that they are, I need to see the rest. I must see the rest. This was incredible. John Boyega plays a real-life copa policeman. Leroy Logan, who joins the racist police in the 1980s to try and build a bridge between the police and his local community. I'm not going to get into the politics of it. Suffice to say, John Boyega is incredible in this. He shows the leading man charisma that I always knew he had all the way back in 2011 in Attack the Block, which I watched. I was there from the start. I'm a fan of his. He was wasted in Star Wars. Wasted. Thanks, Disney, for that. There is a scene in this where Boyega puts on the police uniform and he's checking the fit. He's making sure he looks good. He looks good. He's proud of himself. But then there's a flash of realisation and he looks at himself and he thinks, what is he doing? Who is he? Am I a traitor? And all that is done with no dialogue. It's just a short scene of a man looking in the mirror and you get the whole mindset of the character in this one short scene. The story is inconclusive. This man had a very long career in the police, but this is just a short view of the start. I've seen one review calling it unsatisfying, but if we did this for a main review, I'd be all over this. Yeah, it's a must watch. I loved it. Recreates the time period with the music, the clothes, the wallpaper really well. The father and son story that is at the centre of it is so moving and thought-provoking. It's it's very good. Hard recommend from me for this one. I think I will definitely be giving it a go. I've heard nothing but positive things. I have to say I've heard that the calibre is not quite to the same standard as the series goes on. But I'll let you be the fact finder on that, if you don't mind. If you said you're going to watch the rest, give, give them a go and let me know if it's worth it, please. I will. All independent stories, aren't they, as well? Yes, it's an anthology of unrelated films, much like Welcome to the Blumhouse, but with an astronomical difference in quality, I think. <laughs> Fair enough. Any any other content or any honourable mentions on your list? Honourable mention is a film that was the top streaming film on Rotten Tomatoes, or Tomatoes, because I know we've got some American listeners. 
I bought this by accident. It's the Iron Mask, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jackie Chan. Oh yeah, we we deliberated whether to review this as a as a collective, but we decided against it. I'm I'm gonna be honest. I'm quite glad we did that. But tell me, I was wrong. Okay, this is about number one: a cartographer traveling across the world for some reason. Number two: restoring the true Russian Tsar to the throne. Number three. An oppressive authority in a small town controlling tea production and distribution and the restoration of the ownership of the tea business to the White Wizards. The tea's also made by a dragon. Number four, the incursion of magical creatures into our world. There's so much going on, it's impossible to just discuss briefly. In the course of writing a film, I'm sure there's many ideas that are thrown out as the final product comes together, but this is a film where all the ideas that anyone said have all gone into the film. Prison fights, pirates, Jackie Chan stunt team doing fights, dragon riding, gremlin-like companions, scantily clad women for no reason, doppelganger fights ending with, no, she's the imposter, no, she's the imposter, steampunk villains who use electricity and sound to defeat people. There's so much going on. I cannot begin to describe this, but of all the things I could say, I'll give you this one detail that shows how lazy this film is. There is a scene in which a woman is in a prison cell talking to people inside the prison cell. Arnold Schwarzenegger is outside the prison cell. When it cuts to Arnold Schwarzenegger, the sound of the woman talking is muffled. Yeah? So when it cuts to him, it's muffled. There is one point at which the sound of the woman talking becomes muffled before it cuts to Arnold Schwarzenegger. So that very simple bit of sound mixing, they've botched it, it's very noticeable, and it's in this film. And that right there should give you an idea of the quality. Yeah. It did sound very, very interesting when you rhymed off what it was actually about. I'm still quite inclined to give it a go, if I'm honest. I'm just really intrigued. I, I was, it, it kept my attention. It kept my attention. Mainly out of like morbid curiosity as to how bad it was going to get. Yeah, uh, as to how bad it was going to get. And this, the main story eventually centers on this Western style story of there is a town being oppressed by this authority, the evil sheriff, and the heroes have to come in, liberate the town and, the, and train the townspeople to overthrow the princess, the sheriff. But this town is introduced 55 minutes into the film. Okay. It's, it's, uh, How much did this mistake cost you, James? £1.99. One, one what, what, what happened as such? Just just happy clicking? Or? I, I, I don't... I, I clicked watch trailer, I think. I wanted to click watch trailer, but I clicked buy instead. And no confirmation, it just did it. <laughs> oh, what a shame. Oh well, at least it could have been worse. One ninety nine isn't the biggest uh, price in the world, so you, you it could have been worse. It could, it could have been worse. That was a dishonourable mention. <laughs> I've, uh, I will not dishonour this podcast anymore. Daniel, what have you been watching? So last week I listened back to our possessor review, as sometimes do. I'm not a narcissist. I just like to see, you know, whether we're progressing as a podcast. We're getting better, are we? Yeah, I think we are. So I noticed that I, I can't even remember the context now, but I said Bosch at some point, and that made me remember the good old program that was one of Amazon's first original pieces, and that is the series Bosch with Titus Welliver. And I thought, why have you never bothered watching that? It's been very, very highly reviewed. Just come on, give it a go. So I did, and it's it's an old-fashioned throwback to the detective genre. Like I say, it's got Titus Welliver, which is a, a great name. What an unbelievable name. Um, he stars as this flawed detective with a troubled past. And I had a perception that this was going to be a very episodic, oh, new case every week type of show. And it's not that. I don't know why I did think that it was going to be that at all, because it's based on a series of books by Michael Connolly that I've not read, but his other works include Bloodwork. 2002 film with Clint Eastwood, which I really enjoyed at the time, and The Lincoln Lawyer with Matthew McConaughey, which is also very, very good. So, as you would expect from somebody who's 
adept at writing novels. Uh, it's a very well-written show. He doesn't write it himself, but obviously they took quite large inspiration from them. Uh, but it feels very dense in terms of its plotting and its characters. It's more akin to something like True Detective than it is to CSI or Law and Order. And this is one case told across the span of a full season with several juicy subplots thrown in to propel the story along. So season one, it starts off with Bosch being investigated and standing trial for the fatal shooting of a suspect. You then get some human remains that show up, which kickstarts the main investigation, which centers on a historic murder, which happened 25 years ago. Then you get a routine traffic stop by some policemen that results in them finding a body in the back of a van. And a lot of these plots run in parallel, but they're also interwoven, but into a really tight narrative. From what I've just said, you could imagine that it goes a bit all over the place, but it doesn't feel like that at all. Um, there's also some really natural scenes between characters, particularly the police officers, whether it be Bosch's colleagues ribbing him for sleeping with a fellow female officer, his commander offering him a homemade cookie during a tense chat or a, a quick jibe between Bosch and his partner. It makes everybody feel down to earth and relatable and also provides a bit of warmth and humour to some pretty miserable subject matter. Death being, being what that is. Uh, so far, I'm just really loving the feel of this show. From the opening credits, you get this really cool opening title and the music is like a modern jazz number that helps set the vibe, but also like draws back to your 80s type detective stories. I am kicking myself for being so late to the table on this because it's exactly the sort of show that I love. But I think it just goes to show as well that the, the quality of Amazon's earlier content was far superior than Netflix. I think, what did we have at the beginning? Hemlock Grove, which somehow sustained another four or five seasons, which I did not get. That was awful. Oh, obviously, House of Cards was good, but you have another show, I think, that was one of their first. Oh, what's it called now? It's with the guy out of Arrested Development. Trans... Plays a transgender... Transparent. Transparent. That was one of their earlier shows, and that's obviously got such critical acclaim. They, they know what they're doing. They are a rival force uh, against Netflix. But yeah, it's a really confident show that knows exactly what it wants to be. And I'm looking forward to finding my way through the other seasons. How many seasons are there? I think there's six now. So I've got quite a way. Mm. Tonally, is it a darker, gritty, harrowing crime drama? Or is it a bit, bit lighter, a bit more like CSI? I'd say it's somewhere in the middle so far. I'm about three quarters way through the first season. It's not the bleakest of the bleak by any means. Like I said, there is a bit of humour thrown in there to keep things not overwhelmingly depressive. But um, yeah, it's the middle of the road, I'd say, in that in that way. Okay. What else have you been watching? I had the pleasure of watching The Trials of Oscar Pistorius on BBC iPlayer. Have you seen this thrown your way? I did see the thumbnail. I was tempted. I was tempted, so I'm keen to hear this. So this is a documentary that delves into the murder of Reva Steenkamp, Oscar Pistorius's girlfriend, at the hands of the man himself, Oscar Pistorius, who accidentally or not shot her in his home. Uh, many people will remember what a shocking event this was. It was highly publicised at the time because he'd built up such a following with his um, athletic career and his celebrity. He, he was a poster boy for South Africa, basically. A, a beacon of hope as to what is truly possible if you dealt some pretty shitty cards in life. But all this quickly came crashing down around him, and this is an exploration of that. It, I will say it feels very balanced in its approach. I don't, and I haven't seen it all. I've only seen the first of three episodes. There's a theme this week, just not finishing things. But I don't currently feel as though it does have an agenda in terms of portraying him as innocent or guilty, and that is evidenced by the fact that they interview people from both the victim and the suspect side. So you get Reeve of Steenkamp's family giving interviews and they're not judgmental in what they're saying. It's just very factual and the same thing from Pistorius's family as well. You don't get a stereotypical deep dive into the crime scene and the murder itself. It's not concerned with giving you the gory details. Instead, it delves into 
Oscar Pistorius's life, his difficulties as a child, dealing with the loss of his legs, how that impacted him and the family. And yet, against all odds, it's actually the catalyst for spurring on his career and what he aims to do. What I didn't expect is that it also deals with the historical political strife within South Africa going into apartheid and how the impact of that is felt through the later generations. It is trying to tell a bigger story about South Africa as a nation, its culture, and how this case in particular angered a lot of people because it, it fed into some sort of repressed notion of, of who and what South Africa is. Uh, I personally find it really insightful. It is 90 minutes each per episode, so there's obviously a lot more to explore with this, and maybe they will go down more of the crime angle at that point, but I, I'm really appreciating the backstory so far. I think it's setting me up for being well-informed, I suppose, for what's to come. This almost sounds like it could be a Netflix documentary, one of the multi-part crime documentaries. Yeah, it does feel less sensationalised, I would say, than something Netflix would put out. This is just very matter-of-fact. Let's tell you the details. You make your own mind up. We're not trying to stir any sort of uh, emotion in you or get you thinking one way or another. It's uh, just very balanced, as I say, but I've really enjoyed it so far. Any other mentions for this week's watching? The Undoing, I just want to say it's been... It's been in the news this week, very mixed feelings on the end. I won't go into it in depth because it would tread on some spoiler territory. But just to give you my own insight on The Undoing and its finale, people feel a bit miffed, as I say. I don't, I'm not in that camp. I thought this was a really, really solid end to a TV show and a lot more ambitious than I was expecting it to be. There's a lot of excitement built in the last half of that finale episode that I, I wasn't quite expecting it to take that turn. But yeah, not disappointed in the slightest. Still a full recommend on The Undoing from me. I saw some tweets giving away the werewolf twist, so I feel like it's spoiled for me. <sighs> that should have come with a disclaimer, James. But never mind. Spoilers will be less of a problem when content is released at the same time to cinemas and streaming all over the world won't it that do you th- yeah i saw that james yeah it's the real thing it is now real real news news so Let's look at what these idiots did in America. (laughs) It's happened. They've done it. The absolute madmen. They've gone and done it. Warner Brothers movies coming to HBO Max in 2021. All of them. All of them. You wouldn't believe how hard it is to find a straightforward list of these films on the internet. But I did find one. Here's some of the big names in chronological order. Tom and Jerry. Yeah, don't care about that one. Godzilla vs. Kong. No, not that one. The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. Ooh. Are you excited yet? I am, no. Space Jam sequel. Okay, you took me down again. The Suicide Squad. Yeah. June, mm-hmm. which released in October, not June, to avoid confusion. <laughs> the Matrix 4, Mortal Kombat, and, and one that I've only just heard of right now as I'm scrolling through this article, Cry Macho, which is a... Neo-Western drama with Clint Eastwood. Has it wrapped filming yet? Because it might not materialise, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. He's pushing his luck. He's not been resting in his later years. Simultaneous release, HBO Max, for 31 days and in cinemas. Only Warner Brothers. And is this the death of cinemas? And is it really to do with coronavirus or is there something else going on? And what the bloody hell does it mean for us in the UK? When are we going to see Wonder Woman in June? Not in June. Oh, you and June. Sorry. Yeah, I've, I've done it. I've made the mistake. The international distribution is totally unclear. There was an article that we've shared with each other talking about the possibility of things coming to Sky sometime after they're releasing cinemas. Yeah, well, apparently, still unsubstantiated at this point, but Wonder Woman 1984, whilst everything's still a bit all up in the air, 
will most likely arrive on video on demand. So we will be paying for it separately, not confirmed what platform as of yet. But as you say, the, the bigger, wider question is what is going to happen with HBO Max because Sky are locked in exclusively with Warner Brothers for their HBO streaming service or HBO service, should I say. That doesn't include HBO Max, which is why you're not getting the likes of The Flight Attendant, the biggest HBO Max opening series for viewers yet, or any of the other content that's coming out exclusively on there. So it it does feel like it's going to be a bit of a, what's the word I'm looking for? A conflict of not interest. Yes, no, it's a conflict of interest. It is exactly that, because... I just don't know how they're going to roll that into what they've already got with Sky. They can't. I feel like they will do a number on them and they'll say, no, no, we are launching as HBO Max in the UK and almost shaft Sky. That's that's my inkling as to what's going to happen because otherwise I think they're losing out the potential to make quite a bit of money because like like we've said, this is, this is pretty major. All these huge tempo films come in within the next 12 months, that's a lot. They'll want money for that. Yeah. I mean, we discussed it the other week. I don't want to tread over old ground too much, but like you said, it it's not looking good for cinemas. This is it. No. People have lived without cinemas for most of this year, and they're probably going to live without them for the whole year, and they may realise, why do I need to go back? Whenever I go to the cinema, I always have that fear of what if I'm near to a horrible person what if someone is so annoying that it ruins the film or even like when i went watching captain america civil war so many people around me were eating and rustling the crisp packets i just had to get up and move it's a huge risk and it's only worth it for certain big films so and that's me as someone who wants to go so will will there be enough people wanting to go back who care enough about the experience yeah and I want to touch on something else you've just said, because for me, this feels very oddly timed. If you'd have done this a few months into the pandemic, completely makes sense. But now we have a vaccine. Why are they not just seeing what plays out over the next six months and making a decision from there? I know that they've got to recoup some of the money that they've invested in these films, but they must be having to make some sort of a compromise with doing it purely on streaming. So I'm, I mean, they're still doing cinemas. Of course, it's simultaneous, isn't it? But... We could be in a completely different world six months from now. I'm being optimistic, which is not normally me, but everything could be returned to normal and they could be fully capitalising on that by having these as cinema-only releases. But they've already signed that away now. They've agreed to this for the next 12 months. So it does feel oddly timed. You you mentioned something more conspiracy-based might be going on, perhaps. Do you have any thoughts on what that might be? Not a conspiracy, but HBO Max had nothing as far as I can see. They had the anticipation of Justice League Snyder Cut, which I would say is quite a niche thing to be excited about. So how much of this is about AT&T and Warner Brothers wanting HBO Max to succeed and saying the way we're going to do it is put all our films on HBO Max. That is going to make HBO Max a big player it's like dropping a nuclear bomb in the streaming wars is what they've done with mm. this. And now if you want to see these big films, massive films, you've got to get HBO Max. And now everyone's talking about HBO Max. And just for this past week, HBO Max is now a big brand. Mm. It's the best advertising they could possibly have for this brand because everyone on earth is talking about it. So would it have happened without the pandemic? Don't know. But I don't think it's just them trying to recoup losses desperately because they can't get into the cinemas. They're pushing HBO Max as well. I, th- I think you're probably right, actually. There is a bit more to it because I, I apologise for not having stats to back me up. But I have heard that they ploughed millions and millions and millions of pounds into a marketing campaign to get more subscribers. And I think it resulted in something like 3 million extra subscribers, which is not a lot in the grand scheme of things. So maybe this is just further fuel to the fire to get everyone stoked for this uh, for this new service. But, I mean, what's this mean for the future? Like Batman, that's a Warner Brothers production, isn't it? The Batman. Is that going to arrive on streaming services? 
just doesn't feel like the right place for it to live. Not initially, anyway. No. And a detail that is important, I think, is that they're being released for 31 days on streaming, which means that you can't wait and subscribe to HBO Max every three months to catch yourself up. If you're not subscribed every month, you'll miss out. Yeah, and as calculated as that may be, I think that's a good move. I think the other thing that I've heard that they've done, which I think is a very good idea, is you cannot watch this content during a seven-day trial. So, ha, in your face, that will not be a possibility. But I think that's wise, to be honest, because you do get, and I've done it, do you know what I mean? You sign up, you rinse them for all the worth, and then cancel, don't care, not going to use it again. And that is an abuse of their services in a way. So I think that's a good way of, of sifting that out yeah yeah it does mean though that many other people may see that and other free trials will be less generous and less free and quibi of course everyone signed up to quibi not everyone a few thousand people signed up to quibi for the free trial and then about a dozen stayed on as paid subscribers (laughs) Do do you know what i wish we'd done during that dissection of the service when it when it met its ultimate demise i wish we'd have calculated how many hours of content it had collectively because whilst it's saying 20 odd shows we've got 10 episodes at seven minutes each but they had like six hours of content (laughs) (sighs) we don't miss you quibby but we haven't forgot you just yet never forget hashtag never forget 2020 2020 (laughs) r.i.p in peace a few things have happened this year that have made people say this is the end of cinemas. Tenet came out, didn't do that well, didn't save cinemas. Disney tried their thing with Mulan, with the premiere, even though you're subscribed to Disney+. Plus. Black Widow announced to be on Disney+. Plus. And now this, each time we're all saying this is the end of cinemas, this is the end of cinemas. I think we just don't know. It's a fluid situation. And I don't want to make any predictions because no. these are big businesses are they just gonna die off and this thing is not gonna go on forever let's hope not for us uk consumers i think the fate of james bond will be the big one if that ends up being announced on apple tv james bond that will be a national tragedy there will be people crying in the streets if the new james bond film is not released in cinemas that will feel like the end of something in the uk i think no, I, I agree. I think that'll be a very sad day. But I think I think it's going to happen. I think it's going to happen. Talking about things that are going to happen, guess what I learned this week? What did you learn this week? Again, in a very non-subtle attempt to get people to listen to the rest of the episodes on this podcast, I'm not going to tell you which episode we previously discussed it in, but mainly because I can't remember... But we touched on Tom Cruise going into space and filming a full-on feature film in space. And guess what? It's confirmed now. It's happening. He will travel with Doug Liman, director Doug Liman, on Elon Musk's SpaceX program into space to shoot this film. It's going to 100% happen. And it's backed by NASA. So not just a pipe dream anymore. This is a reality. Uh, we were quite knee about it at the time, whether it was worth it. But I've got to say, on reflection, if nothing else, I'm looking forward to what this could be. Have you any thoughts? Is the whole film in space or not? Or do we not know? I don't think we know that bit yet. If it's Doug Lyman, director of Edge of Tomorrow, right? Yeah, Born Identity, and... Mr. and Mrs. Smith. No, that wasn't him. Might have been. Don't know. Carry on. And Tom Cruise. I'm hyped. I'm hyped. I'm sure it will be good. He's probably going to jump out of something, isn't he? It's not going to be Tom Cruise on a spaceship. It's going to be Tom Cruise in a space suit, like jumping from one thing to another or doing the really high jump that Red Bull did earlier this year, I think. Someone jumping from the upper atmosphere all the way down to Earth. Well, maybe not that, but it'll be Tom Cruise in a suit out in space doing something. You've got to imagine that, haven't you? Because I think we might have said it at the point, but if you're going to use sets, what's the point? If you can do it in an interior, just do it on Earth, mate. So, yeah, I think you're right. It's It's got to have some form of actually out in the ether of space exploration. And who knows, after all the death-defying things that Tom Cruise has done, don't want to get somber, but maybe this will be tragically where he meets his end. Or maybe he will meet his God. <laughs> 
I'd like to draw your attention to a trailer. I know we've previously agreed in a conflict of interest that we don't watch trailers, but there is a film called Chaos Walking to be released next January. It stars Daisy Ridley of new Star Wars fame and Tom Holland, Spider-Man. This is also directed by Doug Lyman. If you think, if you look at the original schedule for this, it was filmed in 2017, scheduled to release early 2019. That is in between The Last Jedi and Infinity War and The Rise of Skywalker and Endgame. So it was supposed to come out when these two leads were in red hot franchises, but it's been pushed back and delayed to January 2021 because it might be really, really bad. They did test screenings and the test screenings were so bad that they did reshoots in 2019. I need to know how bad this film is. I need to see it. So check out the trailer and don't let them just sneak it out. Keep an eye on it. And I'm looking forward to seeing it. I'm looking forward to seeing it in a month. And it, it like you have hinted at all indications uh, towards it's going to be shit, but I think nothing confirms that more than us hearing that it's arriving on 5OD. Is it? No, no, no. <laughs> Why did you want... For our American listeners, 5OD is the streaming service of our very, very horrific TV channel, Channel 5, which most people have forgotten even exists. So, bit of background. A film that we don't have to wait for is available now on Netflix. Hello, I'd like to order an opinion please. This film is new, fresh point of view. Let me sit back, this is a fact. We in the aisles, here are some aisles. Thoughts in sync, tell you what to think. I'll listen to you, but please don't rap again. This week's main review is Bank. Bank? It's Orson Welles. What is it the writer says? Tell the story you know. Ready and willing to hunt the great white whale? Just call me Ahab. <laughs> this is different. This is about something. Okay. I read your little script. You pick a fight with Willie. You are finished. Please don't ask us to help you in this sad deception. I am not asking you to help. I am telling you. At this rate, you will never finish. The story is so scattered. You mean it's a mess. I gave you a second chance. I cannot thank you enough. Hello, everyone. Please be mindful of those who care about you most. Menk. Mr. Menk was... To educate the masses on the golden age of cinema, David Fincher brings us Mank, a narratively disjointed, audibly substandard, inaccessible snooze fest about the intricacies of the Hollywood studio system. Rich with star power and an abundance of bewildering exposition, Fincher exercises every tool in the trade to bring us the cinematic equivalent of watching paint dry, albeit with a much reduced colour palette. IMDb says... 1930s Hollywood is reevaluated through the eyes of scathing social critic and alcoholic screenwriter Herman J. Mankovich as he races to finish the screenplay of Citizen Kane. Daniel, what did you think of Mank? First off, I just want to say that I'm I'm a big David Fincher fan. Seven and Fight Club, two of my all-time favourite films. He is a visionary, much like our Lord Saviour, Christopher Nolan. I would put him in the same league. He can be very experimental in his storytelling. You only need to look at films like Fight Club or what he does with the camera in Panic Room. They're good examples of that. But in Mank, you see him take this style to an exaggerated level. So as you said, it's set in the 1930s and 40s. And he captures this by shooting the film in black and white to reflect films from the era. He also makes the decision to reduce the audio quality to like this mono track, which again, very interesting. All pretty cool stylistic choices. Adding to the mix that this is a critically acclaimed director telling a story about the industry he works within. It's a recipe for success. Or is it? You may have gathered from a plot summary, I was not a fan of this film. And I'm not going to say I was anywhere near as hyped for it as I was Tenet, but my thoughts on it are very similar. This feels like a passion project that was a bit too self-indulgent for my liking. I think if you're an industry insider, 
you're likely to get a lot out of it because narratively it doesn't give a single shit whether you know who is who or what is going on. It's almost assumed that you do know, which Oscar voters probably are when it comes to the history of Hollywood. But to me, that and the way in which it's shot, frankly, reeked of Oscar bait. First 30 minutes is really exposition heavy without providing any real detail, unless you are aware of the time period. There's nods to the Marx Brothers, the throw-in mentions of FDR. We're not all American. I know who FDR is because I studied that period of history, but not everybody does. That's not the point. I just I just think if you're not clued up, a lot of this will mean absolutely nothing to you. I'm not saying every reference landed with me, but I studied film at uni, so I've got a level of understanding. And I'm not... Don't get it twisted, James. I'm not saying that you can't grab a, the general idea of what's going on without the added context, but why do I care about any of it? Anyway, sorry. Following the 30 minutes of meandering nothingness, you get this scene with an MGM studio head walking through the studio and giving you a bit of an overview. And I thought, oh, this is good. I'm getting some detail here. Why didn't they do this at the beginning? But I had hope. And then they just completely abandon it and I go back to deciphering why I should care about any of this or the characters involved. To further take me out of the experience, the film is told through a series of flashbacks that then inform the present day timeline. And I feel a lot of that is pertinent information that you need that is just given at completely the wrong time. In general, I wasn't a fan of the chronology. I found it really confusing. And as an everyman slash woman, I don't know how you're expected to engage with this film at all. I'm not saying I need spoon feeding every detail, but the story should carry itself, not rely on you having prior knowledge, which I think this massively does. Narratively, it feels a bit all over the place to me, and tonally, I think you could say the same thing. There's just random bits of comedy put in that feel really oddly out of place. So there's a scene where off camera you hear this noise where Gary Oldman sounds like he's in the throes of sexual pleasure, only for the camera to pan over, and then you realise that he's having his back scratched. Hilarious. That's not the only example, but I just thought, this is this weird. It just feels weird. The performances are fine. Nobody blew me away, but they're all serviceable. To go back to what I mentioned at the start about the way in which the film is shot, and I said, yeah, sounds like an awesome idea. To have that level of authenticity about it, shooting in black and white, having the inferior audio, there's some real painstaking attention to detail in this film that you can still tell in black and white. Um, And I just found myself saying, why can't I just see this in colour so I can appreciate the lengths to which they've gone with the set and the costume design. It was really frustrating. I think if I'd been swept along with the story, I wouldn't have been thinking this, but I'm not caught up in it. So for God's sake, give me something to hold on to visually, but it didn't even do that. (sighs) Sorry. I hated it. I found it so alienating and distracting, especially the sound. There's like a constant echo to every single bit of dialogue regardless of where the scene takes place if it's interior or exterior it doesn't matter it's always there another thing which irritated me is that he's so committed to this level of detail that he he shoots this car scene that's shot against a moving fake background so it looks like the car's moving along it's a bit clumsy but it's very much in the spirit of what they would do in that day but then he does a normal camera shot of gary oldman turning his head to look at a billboard which is shot normally and I thought, if you're going to do this, just do it. Go full throttle. But he, he doesn't. Anyway, to summarise, it goes out of its way to draw you into the time period visually. But in terms of the story, it doesn't do that at all. And it doesn't give it the same level of attention. This is not a film for the masses. It is a film targeted at a cinephile audience only. I thought I was part of that group. But after watching this, I can firmly say I am not. And I did not care for this film. Sorry about that. James, what about you? What did you think? I'm going to struggle here not to repeat you, but here we go anyway. This film is like a university degree. To get into it, you need a passionate and genuine interest for the subject, and you need to meet certain entry requirements. And those requirements are you've seen Citizen Kane. You know who William Randolph Hearst was. You understand the old Hollywood studio system and more. I don't see how someone could enjoy this without meeting those entry requirements. 
Even then, the plot flipping between the two timelines is jarring. I forgot where I was at points because everyone and everything looks the same between the two timelines because we're only talking about a difference of a few years that they're going between. And it's all still in black and white. Because if you look at Memento, the flip is clear in the difference of colour. But once I got used to that, flipping back and forth, it does build quite nicely around the resistance to the script and Manx realisation that getting a credit is is important. That did seem to build pretty clearly towards that. I don't know who is supposed to watch this. My endless girlfriend took one look at it, one look at the summary, two seconds of the trailer, said, nope, you're watching this one by yourself. I'm off. How many people really are going to care about Citizen Kane, a film from 1940? How many people are going to care enough to watch two hours and 12 minutes about writing it? Not about the making of it, just writing it. This is a niche of a niche of a niche that this is aimed at, like you've said. That aside, black and white photography, lighting, blocking sets, costumes, it's all perfect. It's all perfect in the hands of a master, David. Fincher. It's some of the best you'll ever find. Definitely among the best on Netflix. Every shot is perfectly constructed. You could freeze almost any frame at any point and see a clean, memorable image that you could pick apart and look at the contrast and the source of the light. All the actors portray the characters successfully. Gary Oldman is Gary Oldman, one of the best of his generation, of course. But I could not stand his voice in this. I couldn't stand it. It went right through me. His accent, I could not stand. Amanda Seyfried, I would have liked her more as the main character in her own film. I just thought she was more of a sympathetic character, more approachable, relatable, whatever word you wanted to use. She was the best character in it, I thought. With the black and white and the music and the intentionally pre-method melodramatic acting, it was nostalgic for a time that I'm too generationally removed from to care about. And that will surely be the case for the vast majority of Netflix subscribers. I hope I've not repeated you too much there. Those are my thoughts. Shall we break it down a bit more? Yes. Shall we talk about the acting? Let's. So for me, as I said, not blown away by anyone. I agree with you. I think Amanda Seyfried was probably a a shimmering light within a whole lot of black and white darkness for me. She was really, really good. Uh, and I do wish she was in the film a bit more. Gary Oldman doesn't really set a foot wrong, but he doesn't set the world on fire either. It's just a very average performance. But then again, I don't know whether he's got too much to do. What did you think? Yeah, Gary Oldman is good in it, but the character seems to be the same all the way through. Even though he is doing flashbacks and flash forwards, he's a permanently drunk man. Yeah. He's witty. He's got some good lines. Towards the end, he shows his heart, but... Yeah, thinking back on it, it, there's no distinction between any scenes in how he's acting, apart from the very end. So he's good, but not one of his best. No. Masters the art of playing someone pissed, though. That was quite impressive. Yes, yes. It's a very good scene that we'll talk about in spoilers. In general, with the acting, what I mean by pre-method melodramatic, do you get what I'm saying? That it's not supposed to be realistic performances, I don't think. It's all slightly intentionally fake acting even the performances they're acting like people acting in the 1940s it's yeah. an older style of performance which i did think that was good it was like everything else it was well done you've succeeded in your intentions but was i enjoying it maybe not yeah and it for me i don't feel it was that consistent either So I think the person who pulled that off the best for me was Lily Collins as his assistant. I thought she permanently stuck in that role of, oh, I am portraying somebody in the 40s. I thought she'd mastered that throughout. But everyone else seems to have tiny moments where that comes out. But again, like I said, it's just not a consistent thing across the board. Yeah, I agree. Musically, again, it's a nostalgic music style. Don't know how to describe it the horn brass sections and it's quite it's quite basic it sounds like it's an old film and so and that evokes the time very well the sound design that evokes the time even the font of the opening credits they've put a lot of thought into making sure everything evokes that time and sometimes the music it did touch me a little bit when it got a bit sad but again constructing that time period so well made everything feel fake and impenetrable to me 
Yeah. And I'd like I said in, in my review, I don't I don't know of what benefit it was to the film because I understand there's reasons for shooting in black and white, but if you go back and ask any filmmakers of that time period who are mostly now dead, so we can't. But if they had access to today's technology, why in why would you why would you limit yourself? Why would you go, let's let's take away all these technological advancements and just just do away with them all and let's shoot it like this? No. Give me this biopic, if it is a biopic, I don't really know, to be honest, but in full 4K, maybe 8K colour. I want to see what this looks like. I just, it really hampered the whole experience for me. And like Schindler's List is a good example, completely works in black and white, but I didn't feel like it took anything away from the film. But with this, it really did. It really feels like it's detrimental to the film. He just seems obsessed with this aesthetic in order to put across this is just what you'd find in the 1940s. It's exactly like, and to be fair, what you said before, it's a very, very well shot. Like I can't, I can't argue with the craft of it. I think it's really well put together. I just ask the question, why? Yeah, it's a nostalgia. It's a circle jerk for a period of time in Hollywood that I don't care about. I did not care. Did you care? I couldn't give a toss i really didn't care at all in fact half an hour in i just deeply sighed paused it went out for a cigarette came back in spoke to my partner and she said are you all right i was like no not really she was like wow what's up i was like this 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 film's really annoyed me i'm just not in the mood for it i just can tell it's gonna be uh two hours of just nothingness that i'm not gonna care about and it was exactly that it didn't improve I did not care in the slightest. Yeah, same, same. There is one link to modern times that has been pointed out in reviews that I picked up on as well, which is that there is frequent discussion about fake interviews and fake newsreels that are made in support of a Republican election candidate. Not clear what election. I don't know enough about American politics to know exactly. It wasn't the presidential election, was it the governor or something more local i don't know but there's fake newsreels so they hire actors to do interviews and it's a little nod to oh fake news existed back then fake news it's a problem that always goes on and that's been praised in all the positive reviews that we'll talk about that it links to modern times but does that make the point that the journalists want it to make to me the point was fake news is not new People manipulating the media is not new. It's not a new blight on the world. It's something that's always existed. Hmm. And that was the point that it was making to me. Don't point the finger at the guy that won in 2016 as though he's the only person that's ever done fake news ever. It's always been there. It's just more digital now. And people are getting better and better on it. And it's going to keep getting better and better or worse and worse if you look at the social dynamic. So that's the political theme side of things that i'm commenting on very well said yeah it's so dense with references to real life figures and hollywood politics and politics politics that that's quite impenetrable again mm. i mean you, i think you said it before i just really struggle to know what the audience is for this other than oscar voters and professional critics Yes. This currently holds 93% on Rotten Tomatoes, about 70-something audiences. Of course, professional critics are going to like this. They have to say that they like it because they have to say that they like Citizen Kane, which is a sacred text in the film world. And they have to say that they understand the history of the Hollywood system and they appreciate the lighting and all the lighting... Gary Oldman, he's such a legend. Oh, it's so great. Of course they're going to say that they like it because if they don't, they were making themselves less credible. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And I think that's the only reason it can be rated as high as it currently is because there is far more people that will universally dislike this film, hate it even, than, than praise it for, for what it is because that's, like you said, it's a niche of a niche of a niche. I'm sure there are people that will genuinely like it. I'm not saying they don't exist, but I feel there'll be a number of people that will say, oh, I got it and I liked it. Oh, I understood 
what 1940s Hollywood was like. Oh, I spotted Charlie Chaplin in the background. I got it. I got it. So I liked it. Do you just not like Citizen Kane enough? Is that why you didn't like it? <laughs> just on that point, actually, I wanted to ask you, I've not, I have seen Citizen Kane, uh, check me out, many, many moons ago. But is there any parallel between s- certain scenes or, or certain shots in the film and how Citizen Kane is filmed? Because I did think maybe I'm missing out on appreciating this more because I'm not, I can't remember the film, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that does make sense. There are, because in the Empire magazine review, they say, oh, there's homages to shots in Citizen Kane. Oh, oh it's all so brilliant. So, yeah, there are references, and there are references to the script of Citizen Kane, so you can see the source of certain things in Citizen Kane. Like, they talk about Rosebud, the sleigh, of course, but there's also a scene where Orson Welles trashes the room a little bit, and then Mank makes a note of it, and you can see that that becomes the famous room trashing scene in Citizen Kane. So I picked up on that one thing. So I'm sure there's many others littered throughout it. But again, understanding it or not, does it make it any better of a film? Don't think so. James, shall we bite the bullet, get to the crux of why we're here? Would you recommend Citizen... Oh, Mank. No, I would not recommend Mank. Daniel, would you recommend Mank? It's an acquired taste created for a very particular audience, which isn't me. I would go as far as saying that this felt rather turgid and a bit of a slog. Utter, utter, mank. Sorry, wank. That's no, by the way. (laughs) Okay. Shall we spoil it a little bit? Yep. Bruce Willis. Real name is Tyler Durden. Sank at the end. Oh, thanks a lot. Spoilers. I was so underwhelmed and a little bit bewildered that I did something that I've not done since we watched Tenet. I read the Wikipedia summary just to get make sure what happened happened. And I thought, okay, I, I was following it. It just wasn't very good. I did the exact same thing. <laughs> so Mike writes this film. It is actually about a very powerful man named William Randolph Hearst, named Charles Dance. Lily Collins, who's... What's the word? Where you write things down. Typer. Yeah. <laughs> the typer. She realizes, oh, is this about Hearst? Amanda Seyfried's character, Marion Davis, she realizes, oh, I sure you want to make this film that criticizes this really powerful person. Oh, it's not a good idea. The whole thing builds up to Mank realizing that he's written a really, really good film and he wants to have a screenplay credit and go in against his contract. He does get the credit. Him and Orson Welles win a joint Oscar, even though. Orson Welles had nothing to do with it. That's what this film is about. That's what happens. Nice, concise summary there, James. I like it. You did what this film couldn't do for me. And I'm in colour. <laughs> do, do you know what, though? It just highlights as well, when you read the Wikipedia article, how simplistic this story is. It is, it is so easy to follow, but yet they make it so unbelievably convoluted with the amount of references that are thrown in there. And even talking about things in a really oddly abstract way, do you not find, I know we're going to come on to it, but you know the dinner scene where he's basically pitching Citizen Kane pit drunk to this room of people. Yeah. I had to read the Wikipedia article to understand that's what he was doing in that moment. I just, it's, the dialogue's just so relentless that it's very easy if you're not bought in to lose track of exactly what is being said and i for something so basic to just go completely over my head i think speaks volumes about how disengaged i was with it yeah and he starts that speech by saying i've got an idea for a film it's a remake of coyote or coyote coyote i didn't know what he said so i thought well right there he made a reference to something i'm guessing it's a film that's even older than citizen kane I don't know what you're talking about. Should we talk about the dinner party scene? Yes. Mank arrives at the dinner party, hijacks it, pitches his Citizen Kane film and makes no secret of it being a criticism of William Randolph Hearst. And he talks about how Marion Davies, Amanda Seyfried, she's a victim of William Hearst in a way. People gradually leave one by one until it's just Gary Oldman and Charles Dance at the end acting at each other. There's just so much acting going on. (laughs) I did think that was a good scene. Uh, 
dramatic, confrontational, long, proper scene. Cut into different people reacting. I don't think Amanda Seyfried has a line, but she gets to do a lot of reacting and acting. That was a good scene. That was the good five minutes for me of this film. I, I felt very much the same. I enjoyed that scene as well. But it did leave me a bit cold due to the fact that it doesn't iron out any of the outcome of that dinner party to an extent. So like his relationship with Marion Davis afterwards, she's obviously completely in dismay over what's just happened. He's just made an absolute show of himself. But they had a friendship. Has, has that now ceased because of what he's done? Do they pick it up again? There's no mention of that whatsoever. And because that was the only real emotional arc that I, I'd find myself drawn to, it was a bit disappointing that they didn't go any further with that. Yeah, I agree. I agree. We get the parable about the monkey and the organ grinder. Didn't get it. And then the... <laughs> And he wins the Oscar. And then dies. And then dies, yeah. He was 55. He was 55, that it repeats. So worth noting as well that this is a bit of a uh, an FU to Orson Welles, isn't it? In that he wants to rewrite history. I know that his name is on the credits for Citizen Kane alongside Mankiewicz, but this is more or less stating that Mankiewicz himself is near enough solely responsible for this script, which is not what history has taught us. So did you care about that, James? <laughs> no, I, I didn't. I didn't care. I, does the world need a scathing takedown of Orson Welles? Orson Welles did enough to discredit himself <laughs> by appearing in the Transformers movie, the original Transformers movie in 1986. Does Mank need justice? Is anyone, how many people are out there going, we need some justice for Mank? Hashtag justice for Mank. Make this film. Finally, the truth is out. He wrote it. Yeah. What makes it even more upsetting is that when we were talking about the main review for this episode, I said Mank. It's definitely Mank. Gary Oldman, David Fincher. It's got to be good. Mank. Yep. And here we are. Yeah. I think this is Netflix going for Oscars. They tried it with The Irishman, making an amazing story. De Niro, Pacino, Scorsese, gangsters, long. They didn't get them. And now they're taking another swing at it. Hollywood loves one thing more than anything else, and that is Hollywood. So they've made a film about Hollywood. David Fincher, very highly regarded. Gary Oldman's Gary Oldman. Oh, it's in black and white as well. Oscar. At the very least, there's going to be some technical Oscars in this, and then it will be... Netflix, Oscar-winning Netflix. And consider as well that they've brought out Hillbilly Elegy, which is Glenn Close and Amy Adams reaching really hard for acting Oscars as well. So Critically panned, though. Yeah. Can I just say, I think you might be onto something there as well, because thinking about it, Netflix's last Oscar glory was with Roma, the Alfonso Cuaron film, which was also in black and white. So maybe they forced David Fincher into shooting this in black and white. I doubt it, but just a thought. Well, have you seen that this is from a script that David Finch's father wrote 20 years ago? So, yeah, the point about being made to put it in black and white might stand, but is it a vanity project? Is it self-indulgent? I'm right, it is. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Because David Fincher did Mind Hunter, which is really successful, really good. Very commercial, crime drama, serial killers. And now David Fincher has the power to say, all right, Netflix, I'm going to do whatever the F I want. I'm going to make a film that no one will want to see, but I will bag you that best film Oscar that you obviously want. Let me make it. Shall we make a bet now? And I think it's a stupid one. This film, a contender for best picture and best director, I'm going to say it's in both categories for definite, even though it, categorically shouldn't be what you're saying um yeah i think so too plus cinematography costumes and supporting actress amanda secret yeah good show well let the future tell us whether we were right we will see yeah we will see in next oh. year's virtual oscars yeah can't wait for that one right let's let's finally be done with this horrid horrid film unless you have any more to say no no more to say other than i do not rank mank Highly. <laughs> I like that. Well, 
we're going to get a bit more upbeat next week, we hope, because we will be giving you our Christmas special as we review Mel Gibson's latest film, an unconventional one for a Christmas film, Fat Man, in which Father Christmas is haunted by a hitman, I believe, is the synopsis of that. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's fair to say. A film with a release date that was impossible to find. <laughs> But it has now popped up on Prime Video, confirming that we can actually do it. Indeed. So that will cost us both money. If you wish to donate to a charitable cause, we will give you our bank account details if you reach out to us at at inthehousepodcast at gmail.com. From now until then, please continue to live your lives in full-blown colour. Thank you and good night. Goodbye. (laughs) 